this month, we're giving away a custom-built Timponi Nub model surfboard. It's a channel-bottom bat tail. Our podcast is listener-supported with an assist from brands like Neat Essentials, Slow Tide, NVS Fins. But we do these giveaways as a thank you to listeners who support the show. In honor of Earth Day on April 22nd, Jeff Timponi will build this board in Maui Leaflight construction, which features recycled EPS foam, hemp cloth, and bioresin. Jeff's son, Nick, is his in-house laminator. Uh, the first thing we do with our EPS cores is we bog them. And this entails, we mix up a batch of epoxy, we add some thickener, and we basically squeegee this onto the raw blank. Um, this seals any little pinholes in the blank that will give us problems in the lamination as far as off-gassing. This is also the stage where we add our fin boxes, make sure those are all flush and true. Uh, we also add our unidirectional tape onto the bottom. This just adds a little extra structure to the board. And when that goes off, then we start with our sandwich construction and this just applies to the deck of the board. So we have our flax tail patch. We have our hemp, which uh, goes over the entire deck of the board. And we basically inlay those. We inlay those and we get let them get pretty hard to where they're trimmable, then we trim them up and then we can start just the standard lamination process. So we flip the board over, we always do the bottom of the board first. And um, that's it's just like any other glassing schedule as far as the fiberglass goes, but we use our super sap uh, epoxy from entropy resins and we'll either use the brt which is a uh, gives you a nice clean white finished board or we'll use the uh, one which is the highest bio content available from entropy resins and that's great with color work if we add in color into the resin uh, or pigments and tints then uh, we'll use the one because it's the highest bio content and it comes out really clean with the colors so basically we'll wrap up the bottom uh, we'll let that cure we'll clean up the overlap which is over on the deck now so we'll flip the board and we'll apply a single layer to the deck because we already have our uh, fiber reinforcements on the deck we don't need to add extra layers of fiberglass um, after that we you know just let that kick then we base the rails and all the little corners and crevices and then we give it a hot coat from there it goes into the sanding room probably a day later after it's all cured and ready to sand and it finishes up just like any other board. So the process isn't that far off, uh, but it does take, there's a couple extra steps and it takes extra time because the, the nature of the epoxy, it doesn't go off as fast as the polyester resin, uh, but there's less fumes. Um, uh, and uh, we really just like the way it comes out. We get boards really light and strong, and uh, that's what we're going for for our Maui Leaf Light. In addition to donating a giveaway board for the third April in a row, the Timponis have been monthly donors to this show for four years since we set up this donation platform. So thanks to them. We're going to pick one winner on May 1st from the list of people who made a donation of any size in the month of April. You can do that on surfsplendorpodcast.com. We suggest setting a recurring $5 monthly donation via the PayPal button, but any size will get you into this, and uh, we're also available on Venmo at Surf Splendor. So thank you so much. 
Also, being listener supported allows us to be selective about the brands that we work with and the products that we choose to feature. One of those products that's gotten overwhelmingly positive feedback in recent months is NVS fins. I've even chatted with a few pro surfers who have raved. Yeah, you think about like, God, man, I probably gave back some really good boards. Yeah. Exactly. You know, that I just had bad fins in. Totally. And that's, yeah, I love the foil of their fins and I love how, like, I don't think a fin should flex until the top third of the fin. For mm -hmm. me, personally, that's what I like. Um, so I don't like flexy fins, really, but the spring in those fins and the, the hold in them is pretty insane. Yeah. That's Taylor Knox, obviously. He's got a set of fins with NVS, which I actually just ordered a set of, so I will report back on those eventually when we all get back into the water after this COVID craze. And I've kind of focused on their G10 fiberglass and superior foils whenever I've talked about NVS, but I should probably note that because it's just Jamin and Leif, they have an amazing program for doing custom, co-branded, or private label fins. They work with shapers like Album, Dan Mann, Maurice Cole. They can do small runs very quickly, and most importantly, they fit a shaper's budget. Obviously, I've talked to a lot of shapers, and They've often complained to me that they couldn't get the fin templates that they wanted for their specific boards because minimum orders are too high or the fin manufacturer didn't deliver them on time or that the fins had flaws and they were poorly made. So basically, they felt like they didn't get the same attention and customer service as maybe some of the larger purchasers would have. So Jamin and Leif can make absolutely anything in a timely and dare I say it, professional manner. Find everything you need on surfnvs.com. Get 20% off their Apex series with the promo code PODCAST. Free shipping on all domestic orders as well. Surfnvs.com, promo code PODCAST. Jeff Hackman is our guest on today's show. He probably needs very little introduction. Among the far-ranging things that we discuss in our conversation are him dominating Sunset at the age of 17 when he weighed a mere 125 pounds, him co-founding Quicksilver USA with Bob McKnight, we talk fatherhood, both shortcomings of his own father and their reconciliation, as well as Jeff's experience as a father. We talk about Jeff making and losing a small fortune, about his 30-year struggle with substance abuse, and how he's now positioned himself to surf to the age of 100. This is part of our series of Kauai episodes, and despite Jeff not having any ancestral connection to the islands, he began sailing to Kauai in 1962 and he has been living there for the past 24 years. So we also discuss the decisions and challenges therein. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with the mighty and wonderfully humble Jeff alone. Change the words to this song and start singing again.
Do you follow Warshaw's EOS, Encyclopedia no. of Surfing? Uh, a little bit, yeah, a little bit, yeah, yeah. Okay, he sends out a Sunday email every week. Mm-hmm. A couple of weeks ago, it was footage of you um, surfing the Duke Invitational at Sunset in 1965, mm-hmm. I believe at the age of 17. Mm-hmm. And what struck me was the parallels between modern-day Jack Robinson and you back at that time, which was um, you're both kids who really don't look like you should have anything to do with that wave, but you have supreme confidence, like a steely-eyed kind of confidence, pushing beyond the known limits of the boards, the equipment itself, and then also um, how that wave's ever been ridden before. You know, every decade sort of has its, I mean, like its performance levels, you know, and so, I mean, it's all, I mean, what I was doing in 65 was much, much different than what Jack Robinson did last year, you know, like, like that's what Jack's doing is a whole other level, but it's all relative, you know, it's like whatever was going on in 65, what I was doing was a notch above, Mm -hmm. just like what Jack was doing last year, you know. Um, it's just interesting how it all just keeps progressing and progressing and progressing. But there is always, uh, sort of every decade, there's sort of like standouts, you know, regardless of what the level is. There was a lot of parallels between you and he. Like similar kind of stature, yeah. that steely-eyed confidence where he doesn't even know that he's not supposed to be doing those things. He's just like, no, I have the ability and I'm going to do it. And I don't care if these other people have been serving here for 20 or 30 years and they're 30 years, 35 years old. Um but you're right. Yeah, that's what I was... The parallel is the pushing of yeah. the progression. And I almost feel like you need to be that young and naive to not know what the limits are. You have to be a little ignorant, probably. You know? Yeah. Not afraid. Yeah. Definitely you don't know af- what the consequences are. You can't be are. afraid. But maybe some of it's too, is like... Um, um, yeah, like I don't think... I, at that age, I wasn't real comfortable in public and public speaking and all that stuff. And I don't think Jack is either. He's a little introverted that way. So maybe there's something to that. I don't know. That's what... Stu- yeah, yeah, I think that was part of it too. You're in your own space. Just watching him be interviewed and he just kind of isn't comfortable. But you can see the confidence. Yeah. It has nothing... He's not confident on camera, but you know his confidence is in regard to the wave itself. Yeah. And he's going to enforce his will. Yeah. No matter what, because he just can. Yeah. That's what you reminded me of. Um, I know Jack because he used to be sponsored by Quicksilver when he was 12, 13 years old. And that's he was right. like, we, we, um, anyway, I can go on and on. Yeah, but he was, he was really, he was really confident at a young, young age, much more than a Kainoa or Igarashi or yeah. any, some of the people that are doing well today. Jack was way, way advanced at a real young age. You know, he just sort of, he sort of stepped out of the competition deal a little bit, I think. Maybe his father had something to do with that a little bit stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, but at an early age, like like thirteen years old, I mean, he was already surfing ten foot waves and very very confident, you know, like way ahead of his 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 peers, you know. What do you reckon that comes from? Uh, I I think it's a individual trait, but also probably being brought up in Western Australia, he was exposed to a lot early, you yeah. know, a lot of big surf, powerful surf, but he he was really uh um extremely confident at a young age you know like yeah. way way beyond some of his people the same age that we also sponsored mm. you see that with john john that yeah john comfort yeah. in the water it probably comes it probably comes with a lot of uh early um experiences in 
pretty good strong surf right you know? which is also probably why he hasn't thrived in the wqs yeah. level up until this past year yeah. is the yeah. waves just aren't great you know um let's backtrack a bit <clears throat> you're born in california you moved to oahu when you were 12 what prompted your family to make that move i i started surfing in 1958 in torrance beach california palos verdes cove actually um and it was my father started me uh he was a diver and uh started surfing in about 1954 around the palos verdes area and he was so excited about surfing he wanted to share it with me and you know of, of course sort of you know he pushed me and he he actually put me in a position when I was eight years old uh Palos Verdes Cove it's about eight or nine foot and it was way out of control and I almost drowned and uh so I stopped surfing I I didn't like surfing at all it was cold um we didn't have wetsuits back then so like in wintertime we're just surfing in board shorts and and uh anyway I had really bad experience so I, I basically stopped surfing for about a year and um maybe a little more a year and a half and <clears throat> then he sort of uh he kept on me. He actually, the boards back then were hard for little, little felt, little critters, <laughs> little yeah. grommets like me, because boards weren't made for little guys. You know, they're big, heavy things, like 35 pounds, double 10 ounce glass. And um, the board I had, it was a, uh, a Velzian Jacobs, a seven foot 11 round bottom, had a, a plywood fin. It was an absolute piece of, oh, it was horrible. It was so hard. So that made it more difficult also so he was a very good craftsman and he made me this he got this really super light blonde female balsa wood and made me this board that was seven foot eleven and instead of being um double 10 ounce glass it was single uh 10 ounce glass so it came out 15 pounds instead of 30 35 pounds and he's he kept pushing and going come on jeff try again and i was going not nah, don't want to know about it. I hate surfing. You know, I like baseball. You know, mm -hmm. he's going, come on, just try again, try again, try again. And eventually, I he broke me down, and uh, and I think it was October at Palos Verdes Cove. He he got me out, and it was much more favorable conditions. It wasn't um like you know some big solid sets. It was like three and four foot, and it was sort of uh early early fall you know it wasn't winter so it wasn't that cold water can still be warm yeah the water was bearable and he got me into a little three four foot wave and i just turned and angled and just felt the thrill of thrill of the glide and that was it you know Holy cow. but it was it was much more difficult back in the kind of the middle 50s for a little kid to learn to surf you know it was is your memory that vivid about it or are you just used to telling the story over and over because it no. sounds vivid no it was i remember the wave distinctly and i also remember a year and a half before that going paddling over backwards on a what i thought was an eight or nine foot wave and uh you know my father's paddling over these sets and he's telling me to hurry up and i just paddled over backwards and one you know kind of went deep and then came up and there was another way there was two more waves in the set and uh, i almost drowned like i came in the shore and i was coughing up water and it was it was and he since then he apologized to me much later in life. He said, "Jeff, I really have to apologize to you because it was out of control, and I it wasn't. Uh, I, I'm sorry, you know." Yeah, amazing. Anyway, so long story short, um, after that, I was just hooked. I just love surfing. I had surfed all the time, and I had this friend, George um, Lisey was his name, 
and his mother was a nutrition expert, and uh, Adele Davis was her name. <coughs> and she invented Tiger's Milk bars and Tiger's Milk, and oh she gosh. had she had five books that she did really well on. Um, this is like about 1950, early 50s, you know, and up to about 1958, 59. So she... Would she was going to send her son George to Hawaii for a little vacation on Easter, and he was allowed to take a little friend, and the little friend was me. <laughs> so uh, that was like a dream back then, and um, we were actually on. It was right. I think it was fifty-eight or fifty-nine, um, and it was right as the launching. We were we were all on one of the maiden voyages of one of the first jets to go to. From LA to um, Hawaii, because he used to go to San Francisco. First. I think I yeah. think so, but it was it was one of the first. I mean, we were at a sort of a a, par, uh, a VIP champagne cocktail party, and we had like little tuxedos on and all this stuff, and it was kind of a big deal. Anyway, we arrived um, in Honolulu and uh, checked into the Holly Kalani restaurant. Uh, sorry, hotel, and um, it was like a, for me, it was a dream, you know, let's say, I, was, I think I was nine or ten years old, and and surfing uh, in south shore of Waikiki, so I'd get up, I'd eat the, I'd have the the buffet breakfast, and then uh, as early as I could, and then I'd just paddle out, and I'd surf all day long, and then come in and eat the big buffet dinner, and go to bed and do it again the next day, so it was a dream, Unreal. super dream. And then the following year, uh, following Christmas, I talked my father into going. And uh, so we both flew over to Hawaii, and we get off the plane, and I'm, I'm going, okay, Dad, here's the drill. You know, we check into the Holly Kalani, we surf out of Waikiki, and we paddle out to, you know, canoes, and then we paddle down number threes, and over, you know, queens and populars, and he's going, no, 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 Jeff, we're going to Makaha. And I'm going, where? <laughs> what? <laughs> so anyway... How did you both have reference points for all the surf spots? Oh, it was pretty easy back then. You know, it's like winter time. It was Makaha. The North Shore was just starting to get started. You know, it was still sort of a pretty. This is like 1958, I believe. But that's prior to Surfer Magazine, right? I mean, oh yeah, no way yeah, before. So then, Surfer where Man. were you getting all your? References? You talk to people that okay. have been there, and uh, so they said Makaha is the place to go. So that's what my dad knew. So that's where we ended up going, Macaw. And um, we just had sleeping bags and we slept on the beach. And I think the first night we were there, second night, we sort of just had been asleep about an hour. And this big Hawaiian guy comes over and he's sort of kicking the sleeping bags. You know, he's going, hey, howley, try move. You know, hey, howley. You know? And it was Buffalo Kealana. And he's just, he was the lifeguard back then. He was basically warning us. He's going, hey, the surf's coming up, high tide. You're too close to the the water line you're going to wash away you know so he helped us out a lot he was great he was fantastic and so we sort of made friends with him and he he shared his experiences with me kind of like me and he sort of told me where to sit in the lineup and you know like you know where does where did what waves to paddle for and stuff and so that was a really beautiful experience and we we're just there two weeks two and a half weeks and then came back to california and my dad um, basically talked my mother and family into moving to Hawaii. So that was it, you know. Just based on that two-week 
vacation. Yeah, well, my parents weren't, they were different parents. You know, everything was about adventure and motorcycles, uh, diving, um, camping trips in Mexico, surfing, and uh, a lot of stuff wasn't really well thought out, but it was, there's a lot of passion involved and adventure, so. um, He was an engineer, though, right? Yeah, he was an engineer, but his first priority was the ocean. Like, he loved diving. Diving was his first thing. Gotcha. And um, he became, he was really good friends with a guy named Ron Church that was a, a early photographer on the North Shore. Yeah. But they were the best of friends diving. And then later, my father uh, became very good friends with um, um, Jose Angel, who was a good diver, and uh, um, Buzzy Trent, and uh, some of the pioneering people in those late 50s and early 60s, which I learned, I sort of was pulled into the group as a little youngster and um they all helped me a lot like peter cole really helped me a lot fred van dyke peter would would tell me where to sit in the lineup at sunset and uh he'd go hey jeff you know more over here more over here and, and he was also my teacher he was my algebra teacher i saw that yeah they were both your teachers right right science and, and algebra yeah and then ricky Grigg was my science teacher okay. you know so he was he'd be out there in the lineup and we I'd, we'd have a carpool and go to school at Punahou in Honolulu, and uh, all we'd talk about is how good the surf looked in the morning, and we got to get back that afternoon. We never talked about the subject in school; we just right. we just talked about the surf. And um, so that was it. I had a, I had a the culture that I was sort of immersed in back in those really late fifties, early sixties was. I was very fortunate to no experience kidding. that, you know, and uh, I mean, there was, there was no, everybody was healthy. No, there was no obesity. It was just everyone dived in the summertime and surfed in the winter and there was no leg rope. So everybody was swimming all the time. And, and eating natural foods. Eating too. natural foods. And, uh, you know, people were healthy. It was a really, it was a, it was a beautiful culture. It's um, really helps uh create the context for me to understand the video that i opened up with with you surfing sunset and even before that feeling Mm -hmm. comfortable at waimea at the age of 13 or 14 because to it isn't strictly bravado and a child not having fear you actually mitigated the fear like the mitigated the risk you knew oh yeah that there was fear and i was definitely definitely afraid were you oh yeah like i you have to understand like um, kind of in those early years. I mean, like, I grew up in the South Bay, which I told you, which I explained, and sort of like in those those middle 50s, 56, 57, 58, they're like, uh, um, I think it was Bud Brown, Greg Knoll, and, and um, maybe Bruce Brown, and Grant Roloff, and these, these uh, filmmakers were making these surf movies you know like this sort of like the late 50s middle to late 50s and i was like eight nine years old watching these images in pier avenue auditorium in in uh, hermosa beach and they, they left such an impression on me because i'm 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 just seeing these huge guys on these huge waves and these huge spinning boards and these huge wipeouts everything was huge and it was like it left really an impression on me so Four years later, I'm on the North Shore, and I'm trying to surf these same places that I'd seen on film three or four years earlier. And, of course, I was terrified because the 
the thing back then it was there was no roadmap it was like everything was sort of like experimental so um sunset was still a fairly new place and Waimea was fairly new place and so here I am a little 12 year old kid 13 year old kid being immersed in this culture and in these waves and yeah I was terrified because um I didn't know anything about it you know and yet you paddled out well again like thank you to all these these watermen guys of helping me and kind of uh, accepting me and nurturing me um it was a real it was a real special time in history you know? speaking of guys do you remember your first encounter with brewer yeah yeah um was he a mythic figure already or what was your encounter he he how can i say this uh i didn't really know dick brewer i i had heard he was shaping surfboards and he was shaping some better surfboards on the north shore but this is sort of like 61 62 very early you know and <clears throat> Um, back in Hawaii in those early 60s, it was very hard to get a good board. I mean, you could get one from Joe Kitchens at uh, Inter-Island Surf Shop, which was a mission. Greg Knoll had some boards in McWayne Marine Supply that he had made and then shipped over there. Um, George Downing made a few surfboards, and then there was Dick Brewer, sort of on the North Shore. And I was just a little kid, so I didn't I didn't really know Dick, you know. But I was surfing at sunset and and trying to do my best, and my equipment was way under gunned. What were you riding? <laughs> I had a I had a seven foot four um, little sort of mini longboard for me, you know, that this guy Jim Lyman made in Hermosa Beach, and um, I was trying to make it work at Sunset Beach, and I sort of knew what to do, but I couldn't get down the waves because it had too much hip, you know. So anyway. Dick Brewer was, was surfing around then, and he came up to my father, and he said, listen, I see your, your son surfing out there, you know, and I'd like to make him a board, you know. So he made me this 7 foot 11, kind of a little bit more parallel, still long board, but not a gun, but kind of in the middle. And um, that was my first board from Dick Brewer, and then I was riding that in all kinds of waves, little waves, bigger waves and then that was the first board that sort of got me going at sunset but it was still too wide in the tail you know um for eight or nine ten foot waves anyway brewer saw this you know so he goes okay J jeff he saw me trying 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 and he made me this board that was nine foot two i believe 19 inches wide and uh scaled down for me it was like a a big elephant gun like buzzy trent had but scaled down for a little little teeny guy because um, I was only I was four foot seven seventy five pounds, so right. I was really little, and um, so anyway, he made me this gun, and that just made all the difference. I mean, I felt like I could catch anything and get down anything. So I surfed Sunset with it. I was very comfortable there, and then I I started surfing Waimea in kind of like sixty three, sixty four, and uh, the board made all the difference. So I started I started to feel very confident out at Sunset and Waimea Bay on this bigger equipment and then sort of like going into so that I think that was around 63 64 and then 65 I, I got to know Dick much better and he was shaping in um, Haleiwa he had a surfboards Y in Haleiwa and I started getting boards from him and then 
you know, one thing led to another, and I started, I sort of became one of his little test writers, you know, and uh, along with Jock Sutherland, and um, uh, there was another guy, Jimmy Lucas, and we were sort of all getting boards from Dick Brewer, and uh, and then he was surfing for, um, he sold, I don't know what happened exactly, but somehow he wasn't doing boards with Surfboard's Hawaii label anymore, and he was he was uh, making boards under the Hobie label up in Wahiwa. And that's where I got my f my first, the gun that I won the first Duke on, you know. And it was like, a, it was a three-stringer, it had foam sort of... Uh, Inserts? In, no, no, they were solid foam, colored foam right. stringers with, I think, quarter-inch redwoods on each side or eighth-inch redwoods on each side. And he made that for me. And again, it was scaled down from boards he was making for Buzzy Trent and Peter Cole and uh, Fred Van Dyke and stuff. And um, I mean, it was just like a magic carpet. It was mm. fantastic. And anyway, so I won the first Duke contest on that. And then after that, it was just I was just getting boards from Dick, and we, um, you know, started making boards like seven six and seven ten, and started you know sort of this is more like sixty seven sixty eight on Maui at Honolulu Bay. And Jock Sutherland, myself, and this guy Gary Chapman, Al Chapman's brother, who was very, very instrumental in uh, smaller board design with Dick Brewer. Um, the three of us were sort of living at Honolulu Bay at the time, Maui. And I was going to a little junior college called Wanaolu. And um, we are just surfing our brains out on probably some of the best equipment you could have on the planet. What was your ambition at junior college? Stay out of the army. <laughs> 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 no, stay out of Vietnam. It's I mean, it was really severe then. You know, it's like if you didn't go to school, you're you're going to boot camp. You're going to Vietnam. You know, so it's hard to explain the the um, how how big of a deal the draft in Vietnam was back in the late '60s. It, it just, I mean, the thought of going into the ser in, into the army and the service and being drafted was one thing the thought of going to Vietnam and getting shot to death was another thing and for no reason like everybody it seemed like all the young people or not all but a big percentage of young people saw the sort of the, the fallacy in the whole war and and it, you know and then there was another group of young people that didn't think about it they just thought it was their duty right a lot of surfers didn't agree with it yeah you know I was one of them um so yeah like uh i went to i went to this little junior college on maui Olu, for the first year and just i think i was 18 surfed my brains out with jock at honolulu bay and then second year i went to a little junior college in santa barbara santa barbara city college mm. and i uh, surfed my brains out <laughs> at rincon and then um uh, then i took a trip down to <coughs> Me and a friend, Monty Smith, a guy from Texas, we we um, we had a friend in Panama, so we we sort of took off the spring semester of school and we just drove down to Panama, which was quite an experience going through Guatemala and Nicaragua in those years because there was there was wars going on and it was a uh, you know it's it's amazing some of the things you do when you're young you don't really think things out totally you just sort of go on impulse you know but along with that you get a lot of adventures right. Anyway, so then I had to, I, ha I was called up to go into um, uh, L.A. into um, get a physical, 
for the draft, the same place in Big Wednesday, the exact same place, that no same way. place. I went, I was there, you know. And how do you, by the way, sorry to interrupt. How'd you get the call up? If you're down in Panama, are you calling back home on the phone? I mean, how did the call physically come? Through my um, parents, they they received something in the post. Gotcha. You know, said report for physical. You're classified one A. Report for physical. You know, you're going. You know, like bring your toothbrush. Holy cow! No, it's a, it's traumatic. It was a life changing. It's hard to even, I mean, we forget about that time. No, you can't really imagine it now if you weren't living in those times because it was like what every young person talked about. Because, I mean, you can imagine like if you're surfing and you love surfing, and then all of a sudden you you just uh, you go to your life's ripped apart. You go to Vietnam for two years. You come back, if you come back at all, you come back um, different. I would, so. Again, not to interrupt, but I just watched uh, 1917. It's a film that's out in theaters right now, and it traumatized me. Just trying to identify with these 20-year-old children. They are children. Yeah. Um, seeing that much horror and tragedy, and then realize, because of a couple of politicians who <clears throat> had a dispute, so they send everybody to war, and then them, then trying to realize war gets called off they go back home and you're just supposed to have kids no it's, it's horrible it's there's horrible. no way to divorce yourself from the horrors of the war you know see i had friends i had because fr living in hawaii i had friends that went into vietnam early you know they're coming they went over in the middle 60s or earlier 60s you know and our middle 60s and then they're coming back in 67 and stuff and and they were friends of mine that i sort of knew that from surfing prior to that and they're going they're coming back and they're different people and it, it scared me it yeah. scared me and they told me they said jeff do not go just flat out whatever it takes do not go so you're in panama why not stay in panama why would you even go back to la to honor well they come and get you back they? To, yeah they arrested you three in jail i mean no it was really traumatic it was really uh extreme so so you go back to L.A. So I go back to L.A. And um, uh, I had a friend, uh, Stu Hertz, in Huntington Beach. And he, 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 he had somehow gotten out of the draft. And he goes, Jeff, listen, uh, he goes, you're going in. And I, I had created, because you start, I started when I was 15 years old, sort of creating a, a file with doctors. I had a, I had a ulceration. And I, I kind of had all this stuff that I kind of padded to have a little file. Because everybody told me, they said, Jeff, start a file with doctors to try to get out of this thing because it's going to be a big part of your life if you don't get out so i started collecting all this stuff i think i had spondylosis of the spine i had a possible ulcer i had uh i had just nothing serious serious but i was trying and um and then Stu hertz told me he goes jeff just before you, you go i have a suggestion for you i go what's that he goes well take a tube of crest, crest toothpaste and put it in a glass, squeeze it all into a glass of hot water, mix it up and drink it because it'll jack your blood pressure through the roof. The fluoride will jack your blood pressure through the roof. So I went, okay, so I did that. And I, I had to really keep, it's, it's almost throwing up on the way in. Anyway, I got in there and I tried to fake the hearing test and I had my papers and everything and I went through. I mean, it was, they'd seen every trick, every freaking psychedelic movie can make. They saw everything, as long as you had two legs, two arms that could walk and move, you're in, you know, so I tried all this stuff, they just went, yeah, 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 I got to the last, the last um, sergeant, I think he was, and um, 
handed him my file and he went through it and he, he was just getting ready to stamp accepted and then he goes oh get your blood pressure checked again your blood pressure's too high you know so he's going oh my god i was almost on the bus with my toothbrush you know so i went back to the doctors and they said listen uh they checked it again and it was high so they said okay you have two choices you can you can either stay here at our our facilities for three consecutive days and get your blood pressure checked or you can go to your own physician get it checked you know and send it back to us so i went my own physician so then i went back to my friend Stu hertz and uh i said hey do you know any doctors <laughs> he goes yeah I know, I know a doctor in la that can help you so i went to this doctor and i paid him 500 bucks and he wrote me a thing saying my blood pressure was really high so i sent that in and they said okay uh you're classified one y you know you're only you'll only be called up in times of a national emergency so i went oh great good 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 so i didn't think anything about it and i just went on my went back to hawaii went surfing and and uh and then about six months later seven months later i get called up again and they're going we want to we want to recheck your physical status you know like come back in you know and i'm going oh no this is horrible like what do i do now so i went i can't go back into la um like i've tried everything i can't get out there they're too too tough you know it's like so then i went oh i'll move my my physical to honolulu that's got to be a little bit easier you know and then so that took took about two months and then they gave me a date that i had to go in for my physical and i went oh my god because i'm expecting this to be as hard as la and i'm going what do i do now how do i get out and this friend of mine he goes jeff listen they really don't like homosexual tendencies you know they they this is you know 1969 he goes the sergeants do not like that stuff you know? <laughs> so like if you dress up and do your best you might have a chance so i had my sister help me of how to she trained me for about three months you know she goes jeff sit like this you know and she anyway just all this stuff and then the day i went in early in the morning at fort derussi she did my i had my hair kind of long so she teased it and i had little shorts on and i had these little that i got from tiger Aspera's wife i had these little squash heels and anyway it was pretty outrageous but I, I you're going hey it's two years of my life you know it's like what the hell so i was all i was really prepped and i went in there and um um in drag in drag and it was a much more conservative group i mean a lot of japanese and chinese and very conservative and and within 10 minutes i was called into the psych area you know like they wanted to have a personal interview with me and the, <laughs> the sergeant he just goes like uh we started talking and he goes um listen uh um why are like you know you're going you know why are you here you're going in the service and and i kind of knew the way i could feel you know the way he was looking at me was disgust and um he was basically he wanted me to sign this form that he goes i think you should sign this look look over this form and uh really make sure some of these boxes don't apply to you you know and i'm going looking at it and and he's going so what do you think and i said well listen um i don't have many friends um and i think if i went into the service i could make some friends because i'm kind of lonely and he just goes i don't think that's going to work so he had me check this box that said almost such sexual tendencies and uh he said 
you're dismissed, you know, it's not going to work out. But it only lasted like 20 minutes, you know. Oh, my gosh. I was so happy. I was so, and then, and then I think three weeks after that, four weeks after that, I got a, a 4F card in the mail, which means you're of no use of any sort. You wow. know, it's like as good as you can get or as wow. bad as you can get, depending how you look at it. But I was so happy because that was a major threat in my life. <laughs> that is a crazy story. Well, I had never, it, had you, uh, has Surf Media written about that in the past? I don't remember ever reading that about you. Not so much. That is no. a great story. But hey, I was one of, I was one of thousands that did this kind of stuff. I mean, what I did was minor compared to, I had one friend that, that lived in a cave for two months took LSD every day. By the time he got to the physical, he was naked or half naked. He had this dog and he just, I mean, the guys were doing everything. Yeah. They were doing everything and anything you can imagine to yeah. get out. You know, I know if I had to do it all over again, I'd do the same thing. Yeah. Especially knowing everything you know about the Vietnam War right. now, you know. Totally. Well, um, I knew after, there was a period of time where you weren't really competing that much, but ultimately you did surf competitively up until your late 20s um it wasn't really a viable career path certainly not like it is today was there was was, there was no industry back especially well okay there's a few surf shops and there was some surfboards being shaped but there wasn't there weren't sponsorships there weren't i mean from sort of 70 to 76 i i kind of did as good as you could do in in events you know like um, I won the first Pipeline Masters. I won three Dukes. I won two Hang Tens. I won the Bells. I won Durban 500. I sort of, and you could barely pay your rent. You right. could barely exist, you know. Um, so by 1976, I kind of did as good as I could do, and I I could I could barely pay my mortgage payments, you know. So I figured, wow, this isn't working. Something I got to do something. So I had the opportunity. When I went down in, in 1976 to Australia, they, there was this really small company called Quicksilver, but it was a really small little, I think they had two seamstresses and a little sort of wooden sort of shed thing, you know, it was very small, but very good product and super good core image, you know. So um, I had had a, a friend of mine, Duke Boyd, who started Hang 10, and um, he sort of taught me sort of the the industry a little bit, and I really respected him because he did something that he just believed in through surfing and did quite well financially out of it, you know. So I thought, wow, that was my dream. I'd like to do that too. So when I went down to Bells Beach in 1976 and won the Bells Contest, I got together with Alan Green and John Law, who were the owners of Quicksilver, and I said, hey, can I, would it be a possibility to, to have the license for America, you know? So you were 27 at the time. 27, yeah. Uh, what were they doing that was so, why did you think that would have applicability in Cal- in America? Well, I the was first that- time I went down to Australia, I think it was 73 or 74, Jerry Lopez and I went, we, were, we, were, we did things with um, Golden Breed, John Arnold in Adelaide, and and then we sort of, you know, I I had a few pairs of shorts through Mark Warren of uh, Quicksilver 1974, 75, and we brought Jerry and I brought a couple pairs back to Hawaii, you know, and everybody just went, how do we get those? Like everybody, they're just going, wow, those are really different. Like, how do we get a pair? We go, tell well, me about the shorts. What was different about it? Well, 
back then there was like there was canvas by Caton and Birdwell and you know there were some local brands but everything was sort of more um, it was all tie string and it was sort of mostly um, canvas or or what would you call it like uh, polyester based fabrics and what Alan and John Law were doing is they they had this West German poplin that was just I mean it was really beautiful fabric it would it would bend around your body and break down like a good pair of Levi's so you could feel this surfing it might not dry as fast but you'd end up wearing it all the time because it just was great on your skin you know and um, so and also there was a wider waistband like sort of a yoke with the two studs and velcro and it was just clean it was clean and kind of for the time it was it was solid it was a it was really a solid product and um and then the fit like all the patterns and everything were in centimeters not in inches so the fit was really tuned in um so you bring them back to hawaii with jerry yeah I brought them back to, to hawaii with jerry and and um you know people want them and want them and want them and then jack shipley who is jerry lopez's partner in lightning bolt he he got a hold of it Alan and John, and he ordered, I think, four dozen pairs to come into Hawaii with the duties and everything. And I think he landed them for, I don't know exactly, but I think he landed them for like eight or nine dollars. And then he sold them, or eight dollars, and he sold them for sixteen dollars, you know. And he sold out like in a week, maybe ten days. Anyway, they sold really fast, you know, like poof, gone. So he didn't have to be a rocket scientist to go, wow, there's a demand here, you know. So when I went back the following year, I approached Alan and John and said, hey, would you consider um, letting me have the license to do this in America? I really believe in your product. And they're, you know, they went, well, Jeff, you know, that's kind of a serious, <laughs> serious thing. Um, we, we know you, but we don't know you that well. And we don't know if you have the commitment and the follow through to do this because, you know, this is our company and we're proud of it. And the license for America is kind of a big deal, you know. So anyway. Um, winning the bells after that helped. I think this was before I won the bells. So a week later, ten days later, when I won the bells, it, it was a little feather in my cap. And, and the first non-Australian, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's a big deal. Yeah. So anyway, and I like John and Alan. They were really fun people. And anyway, um, they were sort of on the, you know, they're on the edge. They're going, yeah, we're sort of thinking about it, but mm, it's a big step for us. And anyway, so we're at this dinner at this sort of little cafe place in Torquay and and um, on the tables you know it's sort of like really casual and on the tables they put these like instead of like little place mats they put sort of like these sort of doily paper with holes in it little place mats but, but they were big they were bigger than a place setting they were kind of like cons consume two-thirds of the table and we're drinking wine and beer and whatever and and uh somehow it came up like about my conviction you know and i said well what how can i prove that i'm serious about this and i'll do anything to make it work you know and they go well and alan sort of was there i don't know how this came about exactly but he something about it. he said well what about if you eat the tablecloth you know and i went i didn't even think twice you know because this is after about two or three bottles of wine you know so i just grabbed the, the little paper Thing, and I started ripping it up into pieces and eating it and eating it and eating it and it actually went down not that bad with the wine and everything and um, what I was worried about is the next couple days sure, totally. <laughs> so anyway anyway Alan's looking at me you know and he's he's uh, 
he's he's sort of like just like Alan's quite sharp, you know. And he was looking at me, he's just going, uh, "Yeah, all right, Jeff. Okay, okay, we got it. Okay, you can have the license, you know." So it was it was sort of a going against the grain, and at the same time, he was he was sort of, I guess, sort of impressed with me not even thinking twice about eating the doily or the tablecloth so that was how it was it i mean first of all nobody could have uh anticipated the success of the company from that no, point it, by, on. by the way by the way let me clarify i mean i don't know the volume monetarily of what was being done in 1976 in quicksilver in um in uh Australia, but it was really a small little company. Right. It wasn't like, you know, people think today, like, whoa, Quicksilver, and you got the license for Quicksilver in America. Wow, lucky. But it was small. Right. Very so small. So nobody could have anticipated that. However, that's still a real deal. I mean, where? how did you structure the deal? How? I'm sure they wanted cash for the license. So how'd you come up with the cash? No, no cash. We didn't have any cash. What? No. So what it was, they wanted um, 7% royalties of gross sales, which is it was sort of standard back then, but and they wanted five percent of um, our corporation. They wanted to be five percent owners of whatever our corporation was, and so I agreed to everything because I mean I wanted to do it. And then when, this is funny. When I left, I went so okay. So what do I get? You know, they they handed me like I think five little paper patterns on a string like this, and went there you go. Good luck. <laughs> and I went wow. It's, it's that sort of is that it? You know, so <laughs> go, no, no phone numbers for supply chain or anything like that. You had to just figure it all out on your own. It well, we basically had to start up from ground zero because they were getting supplied. They had some contacts in in Germany or something, but we sort of had to do it all from California. You know, so it was so starting you, fresh. So for their percentage, you're basically just using the name. The name had enough uh, goodwill. That it was worth paying that percentage to them, rather. Than I thought it was. Okay. Yeah, I believed in it, and I, I thought it, there was a lot of credibility and uh, um, integrity, and I really believed in it, and I, I, yeah, I, I backed it ten thousand percent. You know. Um. So, to there was patterns too. There was patterns. Okay. Right. Shapes. We forgot the, about the patterns. The, patterns, the paper patterns. Um. <laughs> So you deploy the plan with I know Bob and was Parrish Tom Parrish involved at some point? Um, Tom was involved. He he was actually um, he he was building boards for you at the time. Yeah, I think we actually asked Tom if he wanted to be a third partner, but he was going to South Africa. Something happened. I don't know the exact details, but. He wasn't around um, and said he had commitments or something. So um, it was basically just Bob and I were the partnership. And then I think later on that year, we made Tom our, our um, Hawaii rep. Gotcha. You know, so Tom and was responsible for everything that was sold in Hawaii. You know? And who was Bob McKnight to you at that time? Bob was um, the year before... Um, I was in Bali, I think, 75, and um, Bob was there on some sort of university thing or something, you know, and I met Bob, and he seemed like a good guy, seemed like a sharp guy, and we were surfing together, and we sort of hung out and stuff, and then Bob, the next season, I think in February, or um, 
March, he was staying at my house in Pupake on the North Shore, and just as a friend staying at my house. Um, and then I was getting ready to go to Bell's contest in April, I guess it was, and I said, hey, Bob, I have an idea. I'm going to ask Alan Green and John Law for the rights for Quicksilver for America. Do you want to be my partner? And Bob went, sure, yeah, you know. So when I came back, I went, Bob, I got the license. Let, let's go, you know. So Bob went back to California, and then I went shortly afterwards and basically left the North Shore and just um, started Quicksilver round one. <laughs> You know? Right, so, uh, but it wasn't. It was, you know, it's like in hindsight, people can go, "Wow, lucky did that." But it was, it was starting something that wasn't even there. Right, it was a dream. You know, like we had no money, we had no finance, we had no banking, we had no cash flow, we had no venue, we had no offices, we had no back offices, we had zero. Bob had a van. He had a Volkswagen van. Amazing. Well, that sounds like all upside to me. Yeah. There's only growth potential. Yeah, yeah, only growth. Um, so you are 27 years old. You're at the, you know, top performing surfer in the world. With I just this, walked. I just walked away from Hawaii to do Quicksilver, which was quite extreme because here's a good example. Like, I grew up when I got to Hawaii, as I keep saying, with this culture, this culture of surfing and these pioneer guys and everything. And, and um, I was immersed in it, and I didn't really realize how immersed I was in it, you know. And then so, by just pulling up stakes and moving to California to do Quicksilver, um, I totally changed the culture that I was in, you know. And I had no idea how that was going to affect me. Sure. Yeah. Well, part of your, you know, story that's been written about a lot is substance use and addiction. Yeah. So what role was that playing at that time in your life? You were 27. The world kind of a lot of opportunity in front of you. What role was the addiction playing at that time? Um, kind of coming out of bells, I was I was dabbling in substance abuse a bit. You know, it was still sort of what I thought manageable. And then when I went to California and started Quicksilver and stuff with Bob, um, um, I was pretty I was pretty well, I was clean. You know, I was good. I was working very hard trying to get Quicksilver up and going first I'd say I don't remember exactly first couple years like uh, I was just uh, I mean we're driving all over the place we're driving up to LA to see jobbers to get fabric we're driving down to Dana Point to see Hobie we're driving up to um, uh, Malibu to see um, Terry at Natural Progression we're just you know we're just we're working really hard we're working probably 10 or 12 hour days we get up in the morning just on light and we'd start driving and phone calls and meeting people and seeing how we make these shorts and our biggest obstacle i'll get back to your question Hmm. in a second but our biggest obstacle was the production we couldn't find anybody that could build the things you know and that was i mean that was our major major stumbling block you know and then there was a guy john bernards that that um used to work for hang 10 and he started a company called Offshore. Okay, it was a clothing company back in, uh, you know, kind of like the middle 70s, right around the time OP was sort of peaking, you know. And he gave us a, uh, a contractor in Santa Ana, and um, she was a, a Thai lady, Sunanta was her name, and she started building our shorts. And it started to work, like she could actually produce them. Bob and I were actually there doing the studs, we'd putting the studs in and 
ironing them and stuff and she was producing them, but we we're getting shorts so we'd put the shorts in the back of the car and then we'd just like donuts we'd take them to terry or or hobie or something and put them on the floor and the buyers would go okay well i'll take four dozen i want that one that one that one that one and they'd take four dozen and uh write us a check and then we'd go on to the next account you know so that's how we started you know um anyway she was we owed john a lot by sort of giving us this contact of this really good contractor anyway um the company started uh i think we were, had a little place on west 17th street in uh costa mesa and um um the company started to work i mean our first year in business or second year in business we actually i think we did a million some dollars and our accountant we had i had a i leased a cadillac bob had a freaking porsche and pd our third partner had a mercedes so and we were taking trips to hawaii and all this stuff and then our accountant goes wow you guys got a good business you're making profits you know so we went oh this is great you know so life was pretty good you know yeah anyway substance abuse kind of started coming back into the situation um and uh I don't know why exactly. I, I wish I could answer that, but I don't know. Well, why. let me dig into that, actually, because um, that was one of my questions, is uh, you talked about it being in control at a certain point, or when you were in Bells, you said, I thought it was in control. I was controlling it. Well, I thought I was controlling it, is what you said. And I think a lot of people use, we have access to a lot of substances now. Oh. Um certainly like natural substances and yeah. marijuana is legal in california where I'm, all the <clears throat> mushrooms are coming online with being legal um and so now there is that area of in control versus out of control is so gray and i don't think most people know when they trans cross that line no, no you idea. only know in hindsight mm -hmm. you know so i think it helps to understand what you just said why like what's propelling the addiction because some people don't have addiction like they can use substance and then they stop using substance or for a period of time it suits them because of something they're going through it's situational and then they're not in that pressure anymore and they're not using anymore addiction is different you know yeah. so understanding what's driving the addiction is probably part of the solution for a lot of people you and know? it's complicated. It's and it sure changes it with the individuals, you know. For sure, it is. I I put it down to, and I don't know if this is actually super honest or not, but I put it down to, again, this um, this culture I was in in Hawaii on the North Shore. I felt very comfortable. It was, I felt very very comfortable in this culture, and then when I moved and went to California, um, I felt like a I felt ill at ease. I guess is a word. I felt like a a little bit out of my element um i felt uncomfortable i guess is the word and um so maybe some of the substance abuse was to help that situation i don't medicating that yeah i don't know i don't know if it was that or or i just like the the effect of opiates i don't i have no idea you know but it anyway could, it i wonder too like considering your high level performing through your surf career and I would miss something age. also yeah. like on the the rush I was getting on the North Shore and big waves and stuff when I got to Hawaii uh, to California that disappeared right. so maybe I was trying to replace it I don't know I have no idea 
you know. Well, thanks for yeah. at least trying to analyze it. <laughs> I, if, I would, if I really knew and understood it, I probably would have a much better answer for you. But I'm but even like now, like, you know, like almost 50 years later, 45, 48 years later, I do not know. Right. Yeah. Um, well, you did talk about, again, that detail about um, feeling like it was in control for a period of time and then it not being in control. Do you remember what that transition looked like? Or do you remember a point where you felt that it wasn't in control? Um, or was it just <clears throat> a result of consequences? Yeah. <laughs> no, it, got, it definitely got out of control. It spiraled out of control to the point where um, I left, I think it was in 1982 or something, like... Um, it wasn't working out at Quicksilver with my other partners. So I left and um, went to Australia. And then um, um, and I had my son, Ryan, who was only about a year old at the time. And, um, and then I had, so I lived in Australia for a year. And then I, a friend of mine, Harry Hodge, who had stayed with me in Newport Beach when he was doing Band on the Run. And he was a photographer, surfing photographer. He was working for as a marketing director for John and Alan Green in Australia. And he came up to me and said, Jeff, listen, I have the opportunity to have the license for um, Europe based in France. Quicksilver Europe. Yeah. And he said, would you want to join me? And I said, why not? You know, well, round two. <laughs> well, considering that you had left um, your initial partnership with Bob, yeah, yeah. how did Bob and the other partner feel about that, about you being involved in Europe? Um, Did they approve of it? Or? <clears throat> I don't really know. They probably they probably had a say. I would think. Yeah, you would think so, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not. I don't know. You know, it's like uh, I'm sure there was some apprehension there, um, but at the same time, I don't think they thought it would affect them that much. You know, okay. they had their their American license, which I think they had. Bought, or no, maybe it was a little bit later. They bought the license for America, the seven percent. You know that I was telling you about. They actually bought the license, I think, because they were going public in 1986. They went public, so I think they were just thinking America. You know, yeah. So yeah. Um, whatever happens in Europe, good luck. You know. <laughs> but when you said you went to Australia, you got rid of your ownership shares. Yes. From the American. I ended up with about. Yeah, okay. yeah. I, I, I actually, uh, you know, uh, um, the my ownership probably consists of about thirty three percent, you know, of the total stock. But still, it's a private company, you know, and it's not doing billion dollars. It's doing like four million or three million or five million or something. So, I ended up selling my stock off in bits and pieces, you know, okay. uh, until there was not much left, you know. And then when I got to Australia, like I had a little bit left and. Um, uh, but not much. Um, Were you selling it back to the owners or just? I sold some to a, a rep on the East Coast. Okay. I sold um, some to Tom Holbrook, who was involved in Quicksilver America. I sold some to Mike Miller, who was a friend of mine um, from the North Shore. Who That was an interesting story. And, um, you know, just bits and pieces. It sort of just disappeared. You know? Gotcha. So you're on in Australia. You take part of that deal for the yeah, European so license. I asked my wife Sherry at the time. I said, "Sherry, you want to go to France and try round two, Quicksilver?" And she said, "Yeah, let's go." So we packed everything up and just hopped on a plane and went to France. You're kind of following your dad's ethos. Uh, yeah, the adventurous. <laughs> yeah. 
flying by the seat of your pants. Kind totally. Of. So, yeah, nothing was really that well thought out. And um, Anyway, so that was 84. So round two of Quicksilver. What was your role, that one? Well, we had four partners. It was myself, Harry Hodge, and um, a South African by the name of John Winship, and we had a um, Bridget Derigrand, who was a French national, was our fourth partner. Um, in the beginning stages, my role was marketing direction, and then it kind of transferred into um, export sales manager, distribution sales manager, okay? And then it kind of came back years later, back into marketing. Um, but our roles weren't really, really, we're sort of doing a bit of everything when sure. we started out, like, you know, like everybody was doing a little marketing, helping on production, helping, just everybody's sort of, it was like a little team, team effort. And it was very difficult, very, very difficult, mainly because there was no surfing culture whatsoever. Really? In France at that time. There was two or three surf shops totally. But I mean, the, the mentality of, of the French people back then was not, it, there was, weren't board shorts and there weren't, wasn't surf. I mean, it was like, I just, just, I didn't even think about this. Neither did Harry. And the other thing we didn't think about was there's nine months of winter, extreme winter, and f three or four months of summer. And so our, our line was like board shorts and walk shorts and t-shirts. And nine months out of the year, eight months out of the year, you don't wear that stuff, you know. So that was combined with no culture, and it was very, very difficult. Like, to, to, it's amazing we even got up and rolling, you know. Again, it sounds like a lot of upside potential. Upside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every situation you yeah. engaged in. Yeah. Um, One of the things that really helped was snowboarding. The crossover of snowboarding and surfing really helped us, though. Oh, that, okay. The timing was unbelievable because um, about, oh, we started in 84, the first two or three years were really, really a battle, man. Like, like, cash flow. We did have a bank manager that believed in us. This guy Henry Pomeroz at the Credit Agricole, and uh, thanks to him, he supported us to the point where I, th I think, if I have this right, I think at one point the third year we had a 80, 80 million franc uh, credit um, line with no equity we didn't even own cars we didn't have houses we had nothing and then his superiors in bordeaux saw the amount of money that we were borrowing and they stepped up and just well where's the where's the collateral where's the securities and there was none and they just they just flipped they just went how did this get to this point you know so they shut it down they just totally shut the thing down this was more like Sorry, this was more like uh, 88, 89. Which is reflective of that era. Greed is good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So then we had a major problem of cash flow yeah. and everything, and we had to basically sell the company. Okay. So we sold it to the American company, which was public at that time. Gotcha. Which worked out very well. Okay, good. Yeah. Good. Um, I mean, this is a crash course in business for you. Could you sleep at night? <laughs> like yeah. how much? There's part of me that that thinks the less you know, the better, because you can sleep at <clears> night. And if all you care about is surfing or whatever, then business can come and go. But it's also a huge opportunity for you that could net, you know, a huge return. And if you take that seriously, then you're going to lose sleep at night. In all, in, all, going in all honesty, if we would have known what we were up against when we jumped into France... We never would have gone. Okay. So, 
ignorance is bliss in some situations. I mean, it's like, you know, like you're sort of in the deep end of the pool and you just you don't even know sort of like, I mean, if you knew how deep it was and sharks swimming around you and stuff, you never would have jumped in, you know? <laughs> but nothing would get done. I, I agree with you. And nothing would get done in life if you actually knew. You yeah. know, like, um, you want to, yeah. It was amazing. It was like, uh, I mean, like the the trials and tribulations we went through with the the language, the finance, the weather, the, the fabrication, um, even the borders. I mean, before he, Europe was a EEC, Every time we shipped across the border, like France to Spain, well, we couldn't. We couldn't yeah. do it. He had to. We had to have distributors, you know, yeah. because to send boxes and paperwork, it was so astronomically complicated, uh, and different currencies that you couldn't do it. I mean, you couldn't just send four dozen shorts, you know. You had to. You had to do everything in a in a <coughs> group. Like we had distributors, and we went. We don't know how to ship to those shops. We can't collect the money. We don't know how to do that. So. Here, you're a distributor. We'll give it to you for like 30, 35% discount. Boom. There you go. You know, you sell it and make your profit and just, we'll ship you twice a year or three times a year or four times a year. You just pay us in a chunk. So we had distribution. And also, it was a much cheaper way to get up and rolling, you know? Yeah. Which came back to bite us years later because okay. then we had to buy back the distributions, gotcha. you know? Because we, we could, once the EEC was open and we could go direct, it made much more sense to go direct, you know? But then it was it was a huge learning, it was a process, you know? Totally. It was uh, it, unbelievable. It was like, a, it was incredible. But like and, I said, it's a crash course in business. That's it was more. way <laughs> more than you would ever learn <laughs> getting an MBA or anything. Never. It's on the job yeah. training. Yeah. And you come out of it with, what do you do after that? I mean, it seems like with that level of experience, you can kind of get a job almost in any... Your street sense is, is really good, you know? Yeah. Like you know the reality of how things work and, and of what's really involved. Because a lot of times you you might have your 101 business degree, but underneath that you don't know the reality, you know? Like yeah. actually what happens on the street or this we learned from the street up. Gotcha. And it was... It was fantastic it was like i mean the experiences i had i'd never trade for anything it was like phenomenal um but yeah the snowboarding sort of like what was it 90s where are we uh 87 88 we our business we were having so much trouble growing you know it was really difficult and then harry hodge and i were we were up in courchevel or verbier i forget where we were we're on a, a lift, you know, like snowboarding. And, um, oh no, skiing. This is sort of before snowboarding sort of started to get popular about 87 in Europe, you know. I mean, there was guys doing it before, but it's sort of the, the mass thing didn't start until about, you know, 87. So I think this was 86 or something, and we're up on a, uh, we're in a, a lift. And we're looking at everybody skiing down the hill, you know, and everybody's in blue or red or black, you know. And we're going, God, what boring, this is boring, you know. And we're going, um, just twig. I, I, I remember just going like, God, you know, like, why don't we, we have such good prints. We have this print house, so our strength is prints. We had war paint, we had Echo Beach, we had all these great prints, you know, that we were putting into our shorts. So I remember going, wow, why don't we take that expertise and put it into some technical stuff for the mountains, you know? And so we started this 
process. And then what happened was 2000, or sorry, 90, 88, 88, our business went from kind of just surviving to I think like doubling or tripling in, in one year or a year and a half. And a lot of it was where we, this sort of eight or nine months, which was downtime for us because it's winter. And so our summer products didn't really work in, you know, minus 10 degrees. Um, we started putting our prints into, the first thing was sort of these beat up sort of cotton puffy jackets that we washed and thrashed and stuff with some of our Echo Beach prints on them and stuff, you know, and they started to go really well, you know, so then we went another step further and we went, well, wow, what about, what about we do some sort of technical stuff, ski wear stuff, um, and then we even went into full ski suits, you know, and stuff with prints and just outrageous shit for the time, you know, and it just freaking fired and then with the crossover of of um snowboarding at the same time about right. 87 88 everything just lifted just took off i mean just was on fire it's know? fascinating i never recognized that where like quicksilver australia and Ameri america were early developers of those other things the well, they snow had, came from europe yeah the all the technical guys, stuff of the s snow came from us yeah okay, you guys were pioneers because we had to it was out of need right. it was out of totally. survival because we had you know like california's mild you know australia's mild well yeah. Torquay gets a little cold a couple months out of the year but, but they're not snowboarding there. europe's like cold you know so we um we did this stuff and it just uh it was it was fantastic but the timing just everything came together perfectly yeah. like snowboarding came in we started putting our prints into outerwear and technical outerwear and everything started to boom and the crossover of snowboarders going to the snow and then talking to other snowboarders and they're going hey well what are you doing in the summertime nothing well why don't you come down to Hoskor and Beards and come surfing oh yeah you know and then vice versa so this crossover started pollinating everything and it just started to explode with this this sort of beach mentality right it's very interesting times but um to bring it back that credit line was extended at the bank and so we were able to do it right up but until you were also held liable you obviously didn't have any assets that tied to that so when they came to collect that's when quicksilver america was able to exactly. buy you out exactly we had that. to either we had to either come up with our own cash flow yeah. deal which we couldn't right or we had to sell the company immediately which was hard and then sort of America expressed interest, and so it was a match made in heaven. You gotcha. Know? It was good for them. Um, yeah. Oh, and also, I left out one thing. Also, one of the problems then is our, all our, the four partners are sort of, except Bridget, she was sort of um, more um, production-oriented. The three other partners were marketing guys. We're all marketing characters, you know. We weren't really accounting-based, you know. So we weren't running at the margins we should have been running at, you know. Otherwise, if we would have been, our profits at the end of the year would have been much higher okay. and we would have had better cash flow. But we're, you know, we're, we're trying to market all the time. But that was one of the strengths, too. That's what made the company grow. So when America came in um, and we sold the company, the bottom lines weren't that successful. So the price wasn't what it probably should have been, you know? America came in, and in one year, it's like somebody having a car that's running a little rough, you know, and they open up the bunnet and and see the carburetor or something, take a screwdriver and 
give it a couple twists and the thing purrs. Mm-hmm. Well, America just came in and, and saw the problem, which was margins, and just went, hey, we got to change this structure around the sourcing structure, this structure. And in the course of about one year, maybe a year and a half, I mean, the thing just, I think the bottom line tripled, you know. Good for them. But also, we sold the company at a a price that, you know, like it probably should have been a lot more if it was. But you were distressed. It's yeah, hard to distressed. make good yeah, decisions yeah, 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 when yeah. you're under that level yeah, yeah, of stress. Yeah. Anyway, all really a terrific uh, learning learning curve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, where did you go from there? Did you stay in France? Yeah, I stayed in France. Oh, I nice. loved France. Like France to me in those early 80s and even the first time I went there was in 70, 71. And it was just such a beautiful place. I mean, Hasegor was, I think there were six surfers there. And uh, it was just the French lifestyle. And um, uh, it's just, I fell in love with the place. So when I had the opportunity to go with Harry and do the license in France, I just, I put my hand up right away and went, hey, I'm in there. I love that place. So in the 80s and everything, um, it was really fantastic. The place was, wasn't that crowded yet. I mean, I could surf Gittery with, Two guys out, three guys out. Um, Hasegor wasn't, you know, was you could always get your own peaks. Yep. Um, anyway, like everywhere, it just uh, population started to come. People started to discover the Pay Basque and how beautiful it was. Especially a lot of people from outside of France, like a lot of Scandinavians, a lot of Germans, a lot of Italians, a lot of people just once they they'd come over there and see how beautiful it was, see how good the surf was, and then you had Spain right across the border, and the lifestyle was like probably the best place I've ever lived in my life back in those wow. in those that period, you know. Um, so I stayed in France, and uh, up until about uh, was it two thousand? No, sorry, nineteen ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven, and then I went to Australia. I was still going to France. I was still working, but I was kind of had a different schedule where I could take time off and then come back. And take what were you doing for work? I was with Quicksilver. Oh, okay. You know, gotcha. but I, I kind of arranged my schedule, um, so I had a little bit of flexi time after we sold the company. So went to Australia, lived in Noosa for a year, and then um, came here to Kauai in like '95, '96, and I just oh, Kauai's a spy. Yeah. <laughs> so since then, I was back and forth from France and here and then until um, 2015, six, 15, I think, um, is when I stopped with uh, full-time working with Quicksilver and basically I've lived on Kauai. Do you still have a place in France? No, okay. I don't know. Do you ever go there anymore? Yeah, 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 yeah. I still I still have a little um, arrangement with Quicksilver and I go during the Quick Pro. I go during oh, the yeah. WSL thing in, in yeah. September and stuff. I still like France, but it's so crowded now. It's just a different planet, you know? Yeah. Like a lot of places. It really affects me, the population. Yeah. Explosion. Like like traveling, airports, living, everything. Population is the major factor that distresses me, you know? And it doesn't matter, doesn't matter if it's in France, Australia, Kauai, Indonesia. It doesn't matter where it is. It's population. Yep. Just too many people on the planet. Totally. So I'm constantly, maybe because I'm older, I'm kind of like a maybe like a bitter old guy just going oh man it's too crowded too crowded too crowded you know especially surfing spots surfing areas and everything but i do see it as a really a factor that's that's uh responsible for a lot of negative things everywhere you know and it doesn't see it's just 
nobody seems as concerned as I am. I'm just going like, how, how do we slow this down? You know, but old man Hackman. Yeah, quiet like, down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> you came to Kauai in the mid '96, I think you yeah. said. Um, had you spent time on Kauai? when you were young and living on Oahu? I used to sail over here with my father in the early 60s. He had a, a Tahiti catch, a Carol catch. And we used to come over here in the summertime and just park out there at Honolulu and, you know, come ashore. And there was nothing here. Like 63, 64, there was nothing here. There was the Ching Young liquor store. That was it. And, um, and then I used to come. This is interesting because I used to come with Jimmy Lucas and this uh, guy Chris Green and uh, Jackie Everly. And we used to come over here in the middle 60s, early middle 60s, 66, but to surf Pakalas, infinities, okay? So we'd wait for a big south swell on the south shore, and when it got big enough, we'd shoot over here and spend two or three, four days and surf Pakalas. But we didn't even know where Honolulu was. We didn't even know about Honolulu. We'd just come to surf the summer spot over there, you know? So that was sort of like, I did that for about three years in a row, 65, 66, 67. Wow. So when you land in the 90s, um, why did you want to be here? Was it, I mean, uh, you're obviously raising a kid at that point. And yeah, well, I was going to the North Shore because I, I was involved in the um, Quicksilver with Eddie, the Eddie Cow events. Yeah. Eddie would go and all that stuff. So uh, to me, the North Shore was just cooked, you know. So when I came here in 95, I was surprised at still how relatively relaxed Kauai was, Honolulu was, so I went, wow, this is great, it's like a little bit how I remember Hawaii, you know, mm -hmm. it's not too trampled yet, so um, my wife and I built a house, and then we, we built two houses, um, but I was still I was still working back in France, so I'd come here for two or three months, a couple months, and then back to France, so I was kind of rotating back and forth, so that went on for like, God, that went on for like 20 years, you know, maybe more, 24 years, and uh what was important to you with raising kids and the location that they would be? Did well, my son's first language was French because he grew up in in France. Um, and, yeah, I think mostly just a healthy lifestyle. Like my son and daughter all like the ocean. My wife loved the ocean. Um, so somewhere healthy and not too crowded. Yeah, I mean, it... This is an ideal lifestyle, I would think, to raise kids, but you do compromise, I would imagine, um, educational opportunities, economic opportunities, stuff like That's that. That's for sure. But see, we had France. We were sort of going back okay. and forth between France for quite a few years. And so that was really a nice combination, like France sort of like in the summertime and Kauai in the wintertime. It worked out pretty well. Yeah. Um, How do you feel about Kauai now? Uh, I love the reef. <laughs> I love the ocean and the reef out there. The reef, there's one thing for sure, the reef doesn't change. The reef stays, it's always the same. So you know? that footage of you from the 60s at sunset, as I'm watching it, I had just surfed, I had been in Hawaii a couple weeks prior last month, and I surfed sunset, and I'm watching your footage from the 60s going, yep, it's doing the exact same thing yeah. I was doing when I was out there two weeks ago. The reef's the same. Yeah. It's the same way. Everything else changes, but the reef's the same. Yeah. So so Kauai now in 2020. Yep. I mean, we were talking before we started recording how much it's changed in five years. How do you feel about it? Do you see yourself staying here? Well, um, I don't know, you know. As <laughs> I don't know. I... I I love that wave out there when it's 
solid when it's good you know it's like uh it's for me surfing's everything and and if i can get a eight or ten foot wave out there um that's kind of makes my day um makes i go I, I, I go to roti a lot i started going roti about four or five years ago um in, in, in indonesia it's an island in 580 miles to the east of bali and it's still back in time it's changing also like everywhere but it's still relatively uncrowded i mean it's chickens pigs cows dogs little dirt roads and it's really nice um so i really look forward to that this year i'm trying to spend four to six months there in summertime it's great waves um and so that's really nice what i'm doing now is well let me back up i'll back up sort of where i'm doing now so four years ago, i i surfed with this guy felipe pomar okay back in the duke contests in the 60s and we always surfed sunset together and then we went our own ways i went to france and he came over here to Kauai, and we we surf you know we we've known each other for probably 60 years you know and we we're still out here at Honolulu surfing good waves and then about four years ago i was in a roti and Felipe was out there, and he was 72 years old at the time, and he was paddling probably 10 kilometers. He was paddling, just paddling, 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 catching every wave, and I'm, I was about 68 or something, and I was going, how is he doing this? You know, like for a 72, 73-year-old man, this guy's really, you know, really strong, you know. And uh, so when, we, when he came back here, I got together with him, and I was going, hey, Felipe, what's... How are you doing this stuff? You know, he goes, oh, Jeff, you know, you, you have to have a program. I'm going, what kind of program? He goes, well, you know, like, like, you know, I'm really into functional medicine. I take a lot of supplements and I train and I do this and this and this. And you have to, as you get older, you have to have a program, you know, otherwise you fall apart. I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> he goes, he goes, yeah, I'm going to surf to 100. And I just went, you're right. Good luck with that one. <laughs> and, uh, and then I walked away and I started to go. You know that's might not make it but that's really a fantastic goal because to do that there's a lot of things you have to consider you know like for sure you have to consider your health you have to consider longevity you have to consider the environment and community because if you want to surf that long you got to make sure the waves are around and the whole planet's not too polluted and i went wow there's really a lot of components to try to get there you know and i went that's pretty cool so anyway he had a partner very good friend of his, Tom Woods, who is into anti-aging business for 30 years, and he was a director in the Zone Diet and all that stuff. And so Felipe goes, let me introduce you to my partner. So I met up with him. He lives up in Princeville. And um, he he uh, he was very impressive, you know, and I learned a lot from him. Anyway, cut to the chase. Felipe, Tom, and I went, wow, let's, let's put all our knowledge, our 218 years of knowledge together and Let's, let's try to, like, spread what we've learned and help other people. So we developed this thing called, this company called Surf 200. And um, we are doing a, a retreat in May 23rd to May 30th this year in Peru, in Huanchaco. Um, and um, I'm excited about that because it's a challenge, you know. Yeah. It's really a challenge to try. Felipe and I are the oldest guys out here that still surf 10, 12-foot waves, you know. And we plan to keep doing it for quite a long ways into the future. And uh, 
Yeah, I've tried everything. Well, man. Well, Surfing's the best. <laughs> well, what do you do when the waves aren't 10 to 12 feet? How do you prepare for that? What's your diet like? What's your exercise regime like? Yeah, I just, I, you know, I, I don't have a big, giant exercise regime. I should, you know, I'm working on that. But my diet's really good. Like, uh, you got to take the weight off. You can't have no sugar or little sugars kills you. You have to have, uh, um, as you get older, because you're, your muscle intensity and and everything gets a little weaker, you know. So you cannot have weight. If you want to keep doing being active, you cannot have weight. You got to take weight off. Um, and then I take a lot of supplements. And um, but I eat really good food. Like I'm everything's, you know, no fat, no sugar. Um, I really work on that. Um, my exercise regime. I should, probably should work on a lot more. Felipe's pretty good on his regime regime but um what about uh in terms of diet dairy and grains and red meat i will eat red meat once in a while maybe once every two weeks or something you know, i'll eat some lean red meat i eat a lot of oats oats are f- wonder food man like oats really? are just they're just they have everything in them and they have they have protein they have everything you know and uh so i eat a lot of oats um no dairy at all no dairy no no cheese, no milk, no this stuff. You know. And uh, you know, but everyone's different. Uh, there's no one diet for everyone because people are different. You know. I ask every. I mean, I don't ask everybody, but I do ask a lot of people. And um, there's a lot of overlap, though. Yeah. Even though it's different for everybody, there are some common denominators. Yeah. yeah. Everybody says get rid of sugar. Sugar's horrible. Like, and it's in everybody's diet. That's why there's so much obesity in America. Well, the whole world. But, I mean, I mean, if you just you know, like what you should do is like when you go into a grocery store, you should just go around the outside aisles because everything in the middle's got you shouldn't eat. That's funny. Anything, I, anything in a box. If you read it, there'll be twelve grams of sugar, twenty-two grams of sugar. So, if you're eating that stuff every day, you're consuming like one hundred and fifty grams of sugar a day, and it'll kill you, man. Yeah. And it's really and it's so acceptable. Everybody just goes, oh yeah, it's like sort of that's no big deal, but it is a big deal. It's a huge deal. Yeah. Um, what about alcohol intake? What's your policy? I don't really drink, you know. Once in a while, I might have a have a one glass of wine, maybe once every three weeks or something. But uh, I don't really drink alcohol. In regard to substance usage that we were talking about earlier, what ultimately um, worked for you in terms of kicking the habit? Uh, I had to go to a lot of therapy. A lot of I had to go to a lot of rehab, um, and it's just. You know, like over years and over years and over years and over years, eventually you just go, okay, twing, I got it. You know, some some people it takes much longer than others, but if you don't, if you don't, if you keep doing it, you you know, you end up in jail's institution or death. <laughs> well, so talk therapy though is was beneficial for you. Yeah, it was really it was uh You know what that finally really did it for me is I just really want to surf good waves. And that just became such a priority. Uh, it's it's such a thrill for me and it's something that makes me feel so good that I just want that is a priority and to do that I can't do any of this other stuff, you know. Amazing. That's it. That's so what it came down to. Have the addiction gotten in the way of your surfing over the years? Oh yeah. Yeah, you know I dabble here and dabble there to do this and this. Uh, even even festive parties and you know france you know like socializing you know it's not it's you know like bottles of wine and big dinners are not good for you you know 
Yeah. So I want to surf. I want to keep surfing 10-foot waves as long as I can. And to do that, I can't do any of this other stuff. I'm Pretty glad, simple. I'm really glad to hear that. I mean, it sounds almost cliché to say, like, oh, surfing is the answer and it's the savior. But No, the, it is. It's Listen, I've been around the block so many times. I've tried everything you can imagine yeah. okay and surfing is the absolute best it's a fountain of youth it makes me feel the best um it's phenomenal yeah, yeah. well I'm, I'm really glad to hear that i'm glad to hear that you figured out that solution because i feel like a lot of people don't i wish know? i would have figured it out 40 years ago sure. <laughs> totally totally but i do also hear you when you say um well i guess the best definition i've ever heard of addiction or the difference of addiction rather than usage is that if you continue to use despite negative consequence in your life. So some people can drink six beers, but they get up and they go to work in the morning. They yeah. honor all their obligations yeah, yeah. and all that. Other people drink six beers and they're beating their wife and they're missing their right. job and all that. <clears throat> so you can't define it by volume, Quanti no. quantity. It's defined by consequence. Yeah. And for you to recognize that the one thing that you love most was suffering the consequence then that's a pretty big epiphany to have yeah you know so took a while good. yeah well i mean and it's un it's it it's incredible because my friend felipe who i was speaking of yeah, before yeah. when we we're together like he was 23 i was 20 or something you know he pretty much kept a straight track all these years he's 76 years old he's out there surfing 12 foot waves 15 foot waves and he is not i mean he's been on track for health fitness and surfing for 70 years you know will he make it to 100 i'll tell you what he's got a good chance he's pretty good he's 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 really healthy you know he's he's the healthiest 76 year old man i've ever seen out in the water really you know? yeah that's awesome by far um in closing who are you getting boards from now what are you writing i have i just got my i got a brand new uh 10 foot one terry chun gun you know i saw that thing out there. yeah it's like i haven't waxed it yet so i'm waiting for the waves to get good but i my I got a board from Terry three years ago that was 10-6, and I actually had the best tube of my life at Honolulu Bay. I was, I was like 68 years old, better than I've ever had it when I was 21 or whatever, and it, it just got me so stoked. That's all I want to do. I just I just want to get good tubes. <laughs> and That's insane. So and those it was the board that helped. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, Terry's the man. He's really good for Honolulu. Yeah. Epic. Well, Jeff, thank you. I started out in search of ordinary things How much of a tree bends in the wind I started telling the story without knowing the end
Everything that Jeff Hackman and I discussed, photos of that Terry Chung gun, footage of Jeff surfing, is all available on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Leave a comment in the comment section for Jeff, and I'll make sure that he sees it. This conversation was a pure pleasure for me, but it was made possible by the support of you, our listeners, through your monthly support. So you could do that on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate or Venmo at surfsplendor. And as a thank you, we will pick one name amongst April's donors, and Jeff Timponi will build you a custom channel bottom nub model in Maui Leaflight construction. That board starts with a recycled EPS blank. One of my pet peeves is you know, if you want the board to turn out right, the outline's got to be freaking perfect because it just helps bring everything together um, shape-wise. So you don't want any inconsistencies there. And then I kind of just go through the same process that I do shaping a regular PU blank. Always shape the bottom com- almost complete first. I mean, unless it's getting some far out bottom contours. Um, I just did a quad bottom, which I hadn't done for quite a while. Used to do a lot of them in the 80s in California and short boards, and this was a fish. But anyway, so I think I left that till the very end just because I could. Um, but always do the bottom first, get that all true and straight, and then flip it over and bring the deck down to the bottom. That's uh, always been my technique. Again, surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate is where you can see more about that board and support our work here. Also, from there, you can click over to surfnvs.com and use promo code podcast to save a ridiculous 20% off an already underpriced set of Apex fins. These Apex Series fins feature NVS's Series 3 foiling, adapted from NACA airfoil models, NACA being the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. These fin foils have idealized laminar flow and minimized turbulent flow, the primary source of drag associated with fins. So surfing is all about generating speed and then utilizing it to go places. This foiling allows precisely that, less drag and more precise maneuverability. SurfNVS.com, promo code podcast for 20% off. These fins are already less expensive than what you're used to paying for fins, and that 20% off truly makes it a smoking deal. So stock up on surfnvs.com, promo code podcast. Thanks. And that is all for this week. I hope that you are staying healthy and well during this worldwide COVID crisis. Truly interesting times. Um, I hope that you're able to utilize this time productively and also just enjoy this once-in-a-lifetime gift of time. I'll be back on The Grit with Chas Smith on Friday and then Tuesday on Spit with Scott Bass and then back here for a pretty epic episode of Surf Splendor with Dustin Barca on Wednesday. So this is David Scales for Surf Splendor reminding you to stay six feet away from everyone so we can all get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on.